0: Welcome to The Alternative Investor, the show where we discuss, debunk, and demystify all things about investing in alternative assets. You know, Brad, when I was on the operating side, so when I was in operating businesses, I always thought the the guys in investing, the guys and women in investing were just up there counting their money, doing deals, going home at four. Just (laughs) reading The Wall Street Journal. (laughs) Lots of reading The Wall Street Journal. But then now that I'm on this side of the table and I'm actually doing deals or trying to do a deal, I realize the reality is a lot different. So what do you say today? We talk about some of the surprising and counterintuitive aspects about being in private equity and real estate private equity. Yeah, let's do that. Yeah, I think that's interesting. So I think a lot of folks out there probably have some misconceptions about how unsexy it can really be. (laughs) I think you're probably right. Okay. So, you know, you know, again, you you've had a Pretty varied career as well. I think you and I have both been kind of all over the map in terms of our careers. So it was all by design. All yeah, and you can connect the dots backwards. So yeah. why don't you kick it off? You know, you now run your own real estate private equity fund. What's been surprising or counterintuitive to you to be on this side of the table?
1: I think the importance of the people that you're working with, and that you hire, and that you reach out to, just the relationships that you're building. Are incredibly important. And this to me, it sounds probably obvious to most people, but when you think about investing, it's easy to Okay, I'm just going to look at this asset and if I get this asset for the right price and we grow revenues, everything's going to be great. We're going to hit this amazing return. And it's easy to just get very insular and think about investing as just, you know, buying a stock where, you know, the people
0: aren't really going to matter to you. Yeah, it use. feels very transactional. Yeah, like a, you could think it would be.
1: Yeah, like a hedge fund is not thinking about, you know, a one-man hedge fund that runs uh, $100 million is not thinking a whole lot about the people on his team, right? He's just a computer and a guy.
0: Although, you know, maybe, you know, maybe he is, maybe he's got a great team underneath him that's, you know, doing a lot of his analysis and research. I don't know. You know, maybe we're making the same error again. Maybe. I I don't know. You know, maybe, maybe maybe he truly is just in front of his computer. (laughs) You know, maybe, you know, maybe call in if you're in that hedge, if you're that hedge fund person. (laughs) The importance of
1: people in your business cannot be overstated. The people that are running these assets, the people that are finding deals, the people that are counting the money that comes in, everything is critical to getting to that end result. And you can't just go out there and buy
0: something and let the asset, you know, <laughs> succeed on its own. Yeah. So it's the it's the people running the asset, it's the people who've helped you find the asset. It's the brokers who are on the other side of the table and your lawyers and your referral network, right? All these, this, this this relationship network is, is critical.
1: And it's way wider than you think, right? The accountants, the CPA, the consultants, the lawyer friends. Yeah. We we have what? Five different sets of lawyers for various things. It's insane. (laughs) That seems like a lot. It's way too much. Right. So in all of these relationships, right, they have to be successful. You can't have, you don't want the other side being like, well, we don't want to work with Brad and Grace. And those are real pricks. And yeah. so we're going to overcharge them and we're going to put their work at the bottom of the pile. Like all of this stuff is important, every single one of these relationships to get to the end result that you're looking for. That is surprising to me as coming into this world and thinking about it, you know, in 2D like, oh, it's a spreadsheet, yeah. it's an investment. Well, no, it's
0: a business and you need people to really scale a business and make it work. Yeah, no, I totally agree. Yeah, I think uh, that's a good point. You kind of, I, I think I would have been guilty of that same thing if I, had, you know, thinking more about it before I got into private equity or being on this side of the table. You just kind of think of it as a v- much more automatic or sort of, uh, you know, quantitative, it's all quantitative and it's, it's just not true.
1: Yeah. And even trying to get a deal right? Especially if you're working directly with the seller, that is critical. The amount of deals that our firm has brought in, because I just happened to have some sort of rapport with the person that was selling the deal, I think is pretty high, Yep. right? Because they don't have to sell to us. There's a lot of people they can sell to. So I think I'm one of these owners, especially if it's something that they've owned for 30 years, it's a family business, it's a piece of property that their dad or mother or whoever built, it's important to them. And yes, of course, the dollar amount matters, but they, they don't want to do a deal with somebody they don't trust, with somebody that they feel like at the last minute is going to come in and just cut price 15% and retrade them. So I think that the people aspect of private equity is is really is really overlooked Yeah, uh, by most people
0: who are trying to get into it. You know, I just want you to know, Brad, that if I own a manufactured housing uh, park i would sell to you
1: would you yeah
0: that'd be great i don't think i'd want to buy from you though. <laughs> i would want because you want too much money i would want at yeah. highest price of course but i would yeah. sell to you
1: <laughs> yeah although it would be a beautiful park man you would you would be out there making sure the hedges are trim i mean very, it's an engineering very clean yeah very
0: clean yeah so that's maybe that's a good segue into mine is um or maybe not <laughs> <laughs> you know i think what's so smooth what surprised me about when now that i'm sort of on this side of the table where i'm looking to buy a company I'm just surprised by the the generally the low likelihood of actually getting a deal done. I think before I got into this business, you know, you, you read the paper, you read newsletters, you, you kind of hear about all these deals getting done, right? Every day you look and like, there's just dozens of deals getting done. You know, this company buys that company. This private equity firm buys that company. Whatever this venture capitalist invests in this 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 you know high flying new startup and. You just kind of take it for granted that deals happen. You're like, oh, yeah, you know, there's somebody needs money or somebody wants to sell and then there's someone who wants to buy and it just sort of happens. So, you know, so naturally, you know, and I get into this side of the business, you realize how how low likelihood it actually is. So like we, you know, my partner and I have probably sifted through, uh, I think it's going to be about forty five to forty eight hundred different companies. yeah, uh, wow. we've, we've reached out to them and we've had sort of conversations with maybe about five hundred of those and of those 500, maybe, you know, I don't know, 50 or 60 have been pretty interesting and required follow-up calls and more advanced due diligence. And, you know, we still haven't done a deal. And that's just, that's the numbers that we've been looking at. So it's just, you know, I, I think uh, I'm just surprised about the, just the low probability of any one deal getting done.
1: Well, I, yeah. And I think it's because you if you think at every, every point in that deal cycle is a failure point, right? It's uh, getting the contract signed, the, the LOI for you. And then getting the getting through due diligence, and then getting the capital in place with your investors, right, and then making sure the seller doesn't back out. It's like so many points where it could go. Oh, so sideways. many. Th- yeah,
0: so many things have to go right. And I yeah. again, I just completely underappreciated that. I mean, yeah, you know, most of the most of these firms, private equity firms, venture capital firms, real estate private equity, they only do a few deals a year, right? But they they look at hundreds or even sometimes thousands. So it's just it's crazy to me.
1: Yeah, and and actually, as you get larger. I would argue that the deal execution gets a little bit easier because you you're only one of a, a handful of groups that could actually pull it off and so you get more inbound leads, right, when you get to a certain scale, but when you're starting, you know, nobody needs you, you know, small 50 million, 100 million private equity firm yeah. in real estate or in buying just straight businesses. So it's it is a little bit harder.
0: Yeah. And not to dissuade you. <laughs> if you're out there and you want to buy a deal and you're looking to get into the business, go for it and just, you know, plan accordingly. It might take you one to two years to get your first deal done.
1: Yeah. I always suggest, you know, cause a lot of people reach out and are trying to get into the space and want to start doing deals. And some of them decide that they w- would rather do it passively, but others want to do it themselves. And I always say, Hey, make sure it's a part-time thing first and learn and, and just look at a lot of deals. And then, and then maybe you can
0: graduate to full time. That's good advice. How long did it take you to get your first deal done? Once you sort of said, you know what, I'm going to go for this.
1: Well, I actually went against that advice and just quit my job right before <laughs> I got my bonus. Cause I knew if I got that, 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 that bonus, uh, I would never turn back. And you have a patient wife. Yeah, she's amazing. Uh, so, or, or just silly and just misguided. <laughs> so, I quit and then started looking at deals and started cold calling brokers and a few owners. And it took us seven months. Okay.
0: So, that's, I think that's still pretty good.
1: That's not bad. Yeah. Um, you know, probably a year from like thinking about it. But once I decided, okay, I'm going after manufactured housing. Right now, then it took about seven months. Yeah,
0: cool. All right, well, uh, give us another one. What's another surprising or counterintuitive aspect about being on uh, buying deals, doing being on the private equity side? The amount of just administrative
1: hassles, and uh, I'm going to lump in travel in this group just because it's like, oh, we got to, you know, oh man, I got ah, the admin. We got to get out to see that deal. Oh, we got to book our flights. We got to. Uh, stay in, you know, this layover. Like it, we were talking about a hedge fund, it's not just sitting in your office and uh, looking at a deal and analyzing it and being all getting esoteric about what could go right and wrong. It's you got to get out and get your hands dirty. And and to circle back to the first point, meet with people, meet with your consultants, meet with the the seller, the brokers,
0: the the lawyers, to try to make sure that. Yeah, you you're can't just sit in. on your phone all day and just b- and write emails and make calls. You got to yeah. get out there.
1: And the the deals aren't just going to come inbound all the time, right? It's you know the, you can't just go shopping
0: online. <laughs> <You> know. <laughs> although I get these new crowdfunding sites, I guess if you're if you want to do that, you maybe you could, but yeah, not not on our side.
1: Yeah, I mean if you do that, you're you know a lot of those deals too are 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 the ones that uh, they couldn't raise money, you know, on their <laughs> own from institutional guys. So you know, if you really want to be a private equity investor, you, you have to get out in the world and you have to see deals and, and see your joint venture partners and make things happen.
0: It can't just happen from a computer screen. Yeah. And on the, just on following up on the admin side, just the, you know, like I said, we, we reached out to about 4,800 companies just tracking those, right. You know, we have a CRM you got to like input data and you know, okay, we called this guy, we got to follow up with this person. You know, she needs to get an email from us tomorrow. Like there's so much just tracking and admin. Totally agree. Surprise me. Yeah.
1: Why haven't we hired, you know, an, an assistant yet? <laughs> Dude, I have some, I have some interns
0: actually. You need to get on that bandwagon. I should.
1: Uh, All right. Well, let's, so, I'm going to stay on the paperwork
0: point oh, yeah, too is because
1: it. when I was more of just a straight acquisition guy, you know, investing other people's um, money for another firm that I didn't own, I didn't deal on the paperwork side of the business, right? It's like you work on just the deal, you work with the broker, sellers, Uh, and and lawyers, but you don't really have to worry about the paperwork too much, right? That was for somebody else's problem. Now being, you know, an owner in signing for stuff, I've, I care very much about all the paperwork and there is a a sea of this stuff uh, from every aspect of, of doing these deals. And I think that's the one thing I didn't, Quite appreciate going yeah. into this business, and you,
0: you, you now that you're responsible, you probably should read read those things. Oh like. my goodness! <laughs> like just going
1: backwards, thinking about before I had skin in the game, we glossed over a bunch of stuff that I was ah that's somebody else's problem.
0: Yeah, and, and now it is your problem. Yeah. Um. Okay. Cool. So another one I got is uh, I'm surprised at how much sort of art still goes into this versus science, right? So I think again, you know, this is similar to what we maybe started off talking about around people, but. Again, I would have thought that evaluating a company, you know, so we're out there looking for an operating business to buy, we're looking for a software company. I would have thought it was very sort of technical, quantitative, like here's the numbers, here's the size of the market, you know, here are the metrics, you know, do you do the deal, do you not do the deal? And there seems to be still this kind of art involved around like, hey, like, you know, how realistic is it that this company is going to capture the market or, you know... What is the composition of this team and how do they stack up against other teams in the business? And and, and what do you think, you know, do you think they're going to be competitive? And there's just there's still some instinct and gut and just kind of qualitative, uh, you know, aspects about all this. And it, that's that's surprised me.
1: Completely agree with this, right? Because you can make the model do whatever you want and people back into the numbers based on how the, just their gut feels. Uh, to me, I think that where this comes in for real estate is a little bit of that although it's not as critical. Yeah, because uh, your,
0: your, your kind of range of outcome is probably a little more narrow. Yeah, right? it's probably
1: so. a lower ceiling and a higher floor, mm-hmm. right? And so I think that there's a little bit of that. But where this comes in for me, especially is when you know you kind of have a, in your mind going into a deal, a checklist of things you're looking for and things that you would consider killing the deal over. But then sometimes there's something that, that was on that deal killer list and everything else lines up. And you find yourself just ignoring it because <laughs> of something else
0: that's yeah that d- just
1: feels right about the deal.
0: Well, because if you think about it, like any deal you look at, you could literally list you know a hundred great things about the deal and a hundred bad things. You could. It's it's not yeah. hard. You can. It's it, you know if you're a reasonably intelligent person, you can go through and you do that exercise. But then you have to assign sort of probabilities to each of those. Like how you know how likely is it that this is going to happen? This good thing and this bad thing. And then if it does happen, how bad is it? And that is that's pretty subjective. And so what I've seen is that. I've seen investors or, or sort of other people looking at deal say, you know, for whatever reason they like the deal and so they overemphasize the strengths of the goods or the you know the pros of the deal and they just de emphasize the weaknesses And I think it's I don't I think it's just human nature. I think there's just how we I think that's just how we make decisions in life. And it's just it's interesting to see that um, at this level for you know companies and assets that are this expensive. And I think you this is a muscle.
1: Honestly, I think you build this up because when you're doing that in the beginning, it's probably not a good idea. (laughs) Yeah, You don't have pattern recognition. Yeah, You don't know what you don't know yet. And I think that uh, once you get to a certain point, you've done enough deals, you you get a kind of a feel for this. And I think you've almost earned it right. Where like, for example, there was a deal that I did that uh, didn't qualify on my kind of population metric. You know, I wanted a certain amount of people in the, in the city. Yeah. And, it was like off by, you know, 50%. And normally it was like, Oh, well, that's, you know, a non-starter, but everything else was perfect. Mm-hmm. Right. And also it was kind of a lower populous state. And so this was a city that had a higher percentage of the overall state. Yeah. Uh, and I just, whatever, I just you know ignored it. And, and thankfully that deal has worked out very well, but you know, it's almost like these, um, you know, you can't quite be a an airline
0: pilot with the checklist it's not as absolute good. i would argue it's it's a little bit of an art good and and i think the way that that plays out in my world in the private equity world is we see a a, a very broad range of pricing on a, on any given deal right so you know you might see a deal where a reasonably intelligent firm you know a bunch of a bunch of folks decide that the deal you know the company's worth 25 million and then there'll be another bid for for 38 million you know it's the yep. same company you know, both both firms are very intelligent, smart folks, and they, they've they done their analysis. But for whatever reason, you know, one group has decided that this thing has more potential or is worth more than the other. And it's just it's just fascinating to me that you could have a range like that. And I mean, imagine that's a competitive
1: advantage and helps you get deals done when you're kind of, you're just looking at it completely different than some the other groups, right?
0: Yeah, I think it can be I mean hopefully the the folks who bid high aren't just saying hey we're, we're willing to accept a lower return, hopefully they've yeah. they've unlocked something or've they've, they've, they have an insight, but yeah I mean yeah, I think it can be a competitive advantage If you know way more about an industry or you have a stronger conviction about the future of a market than someone else and you're willing to pay more, then yeah, huge competitive advantage.
1: Yeah, so in real estate where this would play is that you just have a different business plan, right? You kind of, well, yeah. I, I don't care what the the going in kind of
0: yield or cap rate is. Uh, I'm going to knock it down and build a gas station or whatever. Yeah, you know, exactly. Or, or
1: we're going to literally redo this aspect of the deal. Where you, in buying a business, is it saying like, well we're going to just put the gas on the sales team. And so we know we can grow revenues faster than, you know, these other people are probably looking at it.
0: Yeah. I think that's, I think that's one component, but I think also, you you know, you just might believe something about the market that other people don't believe. Like, you know, some people might believe, Hey, this is a, this is a declining market or it's consolidating, Mm -hmm. or, you know, we don't think it's going to be around in five years. And you may, you might, you might think, you know what? I I disagree. I think, um, I think not only is it going to be around in five years, but it's going to continue to increase. We actually had this experience lately where we were looking at this really esoteric, boring segment. It's B2B integration. So two businesses that need to integrate their software systems to each other. And there's some technical stuff involved, but for whatever reason, there's a bunch of folks out there, very smart people who think it's a declining, you know, this particular technology that we were looking at is declining. And we had conviction that it was not declining. And we talked to a lot of folks in the industry and that got us more excited about it and probably made us willing to pay higher prices than someone else would be.
1: Yeah, that's interesting. And in real estate, often sometimes in, a, in like a, a commercial building, somebody will actually come, before they close the deal, will um will come with a tenant in tow. Mm. And that is like their know. secret advantage. Does that ever kind of happen with you guys? You Hey, I know because we have businesses in this vertical that we're going to be able to kind of bring in new
0: clients day one. Oh, totally. Yeah. You know? Yeah. Like you might have strategic bidders we call strategics are you know usually these are businesses or companies as opposed to financial buyers which are private equity firms or uh, investors and a lot of times they're willing to pay, pay so much more just because they have a built-in customer base where this product can just slide right into their sales force and they don't need to invest a lot whereas as a financial buyer you might need to actually put those put that cash into the business to build out that sales and marketing team so yeah we see that for sure but anyway so yeah I just think you know instinct gut you know just feelings, whatever you want to call it, uh, hunches, you know, you, I still feel like that comes into play in a lot of the decisions that are made in this, in this business. And that's been surprising to me. Absolutely.
1: Now the next one is a, is a fun one. Always great to talk to. Oh, I love talk talking about, about and, this and, stuff and keep people awake here, but taxes and regulatory. And we just issues. lost our last listener. Yeah. <laughs> yeah. Sorry. Sorry Thanks, Sarah.
0: Thanks for listening. <laughs> <laughs>
1: So taxes and and regulatory aspects. So obviously everybody knows what taxes is. The regulatory stuff surprising to me about how how much this can play into assets in real estate. It it really you know it's it's a fraction of our our deals where we have to deal with the government or the local city or municipality. But it does happen, and that those things are tough to price and from a risk standpoint, whether or not you know a city's going to give you a hard time about. Oh, uh, we want you to repave this the, this road coming into your park and or your property, and then we're going to then increase your your property taxes, uh, even though you know we're making you do it.
0: Yeah, it's like you wouldn't necessarily think about that ahead of time, but it turns out to be a pretty big deal, right? Yeah, and you can't. You can't really price that into the deal. You yeah. know
1: what I mean? You can't sit at a spreadsheet and be like, well, there's a 5% chance that the government's going to make us do this. Because, you you know, unless yeah. you're having these conversations and know what these officials are thinking, you're not going to know because these officials, they get recycled too. Yeah. It's, yeah. So it's like not like they
0: stay there forever. It's not like you could even diligence this necessarily, no. right? They might, you know, the last person said they wouldn't do this, but hey, you know what? That guy's not here anymore. Right? <laughs> yeah. And
1: this person really doesn't like that road and yeah.
0: they, they want it
1: redone. And then also taxes too this is more for your investors. So when I was an acquisition person and just focused on the project level returns, we, we never thought about, okay, what's the after-tax returns look like, or what's the tax situation here if we sell it in year five versus year 10, and we structure it under an LLC versus whatever, and we use accelerated depreciation. Like None of that stuff came up. It was, what's the IRR? What's the equity multiple? right? That's all that we cared about.
0: You cared about the deal itself, not the returns to the investors necessarily. Exactly.
1: That was just, a you know, that happened after the deal was done. And that was a black box that I never even saw. Now, when you're managing money in your fiduciary for actual investors that care about the take home, right? The the, the post tax,
0: what do I actually get to put in my bank account? What
1: what they can actually eat, right? You can't eat IRR. You Mm -hmm. can only eat uh, after tax. You can eat cash.
0: Yeah, you can eat cash. You do people who eat cash. That's don't do that.
1: Yeah, and so that has been actually a fun surprise for me because for whatever reason, uh, I, I certainly shouldn't have been a CPA, but I do. I do love the strategic aspect of thinking through super attacks super weird aspects of our industry. <laughs> Good for you. Yeah, why? Because I think has, it is somebody a, has to care. Right, I think it's an advantage, right? If you're if you're thinking about that stuff and others aren't, well, you're going to get a a higher after tax return. Yeah, yeah, that's a good point.
0: Um, so you're thinking about this stuff a lot then. Now, it like, <laughs> now, now, I'm starting to think about it. Uh, <laughs> once once we do a deal, I'm sure our investors will make, be forcing us to think about it more frequently. So. Uh yeah taxes regulatory stuff government government regulation I mean it's super important and again you just don't you just don't think about that you just think about the deal itself or just the project and you know, like all the other stuff kind of works out and takes care of itself and not necessarily.
1: Yeah the, so I got one quick regulatory story but we uh we were doing kind of a redele- <laughs> redevelop <is> laugh, <laughs> laughing one this is a funny one this Is a somewhat <laughs> funny Uh, I'm going to cry, but you can laugh. All right. So we're doing a redevelopment, some improvements to the land at one property. Long story short, we had to cut down some trees. To make these improvements, okay, and to build a berm, yeah, and, uh, and I hope you planted new ones. Planted new trees, yeah. Well, yeah, we should have done that, like plant new trees at a different side of the park to offset our yeah, just low carbon offset. Low carbon <laughs> offset. Well, we don't have a private jet, so that that's our low carbon. Oh, there offset. you go. So we we had to cut down these trees, and uh, the Army Corps of Engineers uh, got involved. Oh. And in New York, don't mess with those guys, those guys. And you think, well, the well, the army's involved. Why would the army <laughs> care? It's a tree. It's just so scary. Oh, man, these guys are legit guys and <laughs> girls. They're very legit and they're very detailed uh, and they go by the book. And so we had to, you know, cut down these trees. And then we they told us we had to stop because we needed to do a study on the existence of the northern long eared bat. Hmm. Which is an endangered species apparently, uh, in upstate New York. Why do they call it the long eared bat? Apparently they have very long ears. <laughs> gotcha, okay. Yeah. Uh and so we had to wait like two weeks and it ended up costing us an extra four grand because we had uh, you know, some crew on the site that had to be delayed and then moved back. And you know, it's just that these regulatory things that you cannot uh
0: they cannot yeah. predict. And, and this is no knock on the long haired bat, right? I mean that thing deserves a habitat just like we do, but you just wouldn't be able to diligence that, right? You wouldn't you wouldn't know that. No, I don't care about the bat. <laughs> yeah, you do. You love bats. I know you do. <laughs> <laughs> uh, all right, so fi- let's wrap it up. So, think like, the last one, we you know you you feel, probably feel this more than I do because you have a portfolio of deals, whereas I'm just going to do one. But it's talk about sort of how the proto principle uh, applies to your your companies.
1: Yeah, so we've talked about how real estate has sort of a, a lower ceiling and a higher floor relative to private equity, right? There's there's less volatility generally speaking. And so you when you're underwriting and buying these things, you you kind of think that, oh, well, all these deals are going to perform within a reasonable range of what we thought because, you know, we're buying, you know, relatively stable deals. But it turns out, you know, that the Pareto principle does apply. I would say that 70% of our aft cash flow comes from 30% of our deals. And I don't think that that will ring true for when we sell everything. I think it'll be maybe closer to 60-40. But a very small percentage of our deals actually kick off the, the majority of the cash flow that goes to investors. And that, that's surprising to me.
0: Yeah, because when when you before you've done each of these deals and you've done the financial model, they, they probably all pencil out to roughly the same you know, cash flow, right? I mean, yeah, generally. we had
1: relatively speaking the, the same kind of return hurdles yeah. on all the deals. But then some over you know outperform and some underperform, right? Yeah. So some like, just surprise you and and some the long haired bat know, comes disappoint. in and then yeah, all the things sudden, go downhill. You, know, you gotta be cutting down trees. You're you're cutting checks to weird government agencies <laughs> and envelopes under the desk. No, I'm
0: just uh, kidding. I hope there's no long haired bats listening. Well so yeah that's that's some of the surprising and counterintuitive aspects that we have experienced kind of being on this side of the table. We're actually looking to buy companies and buy real estate projects. Um, I hope that was interesting. I think so. <laughs> <laughs> Thanks for listening to The Alternative
1: Investor. Since you've made it this far, you should take a second to subscribe to the podcast and join our email list. There, you'll receive additional insights and insider access to the world of alternative investments. Just visit thealternativeinvestorshow.com.